Own Your Truth with life strategist Laura T. Real advice for regular people. Now, here's Laura. Hello and welcome to Own Your Truth, where we're talking real advice for regular people. I'm Laura T. Thank you so much for listening. I know there's lots of ways you can spend your time, and I am grateful each week that you spend this hour with me. I wanted to focus on a couple that truly exemplify an outstanding relationship. I am honored tonight to be talking with Andrew and Kathleen Card about love first in prayer, politics, and with people. I've been blessed to see Andy and Kathleen working as individuals and as in, and together. And it blows my mind to see how two people whose commitment to service is as great as their commitment to each other. They're an amazing example of how to show up as good humans in every aspect of life. Kathleen as a pastor, Andy serving in multiple leadership roles in politics and in higher education, along with lots of other responsibilities, but even more importantly, in their every inter- everyday interaction with people. I'm so excited for tonight's show, and to give you a sense of who they are, I want to give you a little bit of background on Mr. and Mrs. Card. Andrew H. Card Jr. is chairman of the National Endowment for Democracy, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the growth and strengthening of democratic institutions around the world. Andy has held numerous senior government positions under three presidents, including chief of staff to President George W. Bush, where he became the second longest tenured White House chief of staff. He served as deputy chief of staff to President George George H.W. Bush, as well as U.S. Secretary of Transportation. He also served in President Ronald Reagan's administration. Andy was president of Franklin Pierce University. He has served as executive director of the Office of the Provost and vice president for academic affairs at Texas A&M. And he was acting dean of the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M. And this is just to name a few of his accomplishments. And then we get to Reverend Kathleen Card. She is an elder in the United Methodist Church and currently serves as pastor at Peterborough United Methodist Church in Peterborough, New Hampshire. She served as an interim associate pastor at A&M UMC in College Station, Texas. She was associate pastor for 11 years at Trinity UMC and then senior pastor for two years at Chesterbrook UMC in McLean, Virginia. Kathleen served on the board of governors at Wellesley Theological Seminary, where she earned her master's in divinity. She's also co-author of Pray, Act, Pray Again, a Lentinal devotional. Kathleen has worked as both a teacher and an administrator in the federal government, serving as the director of external affairs at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and as a program director at the Bicentennial of the United States Constitution. Andy and Kathleen Card are both from Holbrook, Massachusetts. They have three children and six grandchildren, and last year they celebrated their 52nd wedding anniversary. I am so grateful to have these two people on the show tonight. So as you know, I like to share how I've met my guests, and this goes back a long time because I had the great honor of interning for um, Mr. Card at the AAMA, the American Automobile Manufacturers Association, way back when I was in college, and I won't even tell you how long that was. And, you know, we were lucky to stay in touch over the years, and then um, Mr. Card became president of Franklin Pierce University, and I have the privilege of serving a short term on the Board of Trustees there, where then I had 
the opportunity to work with Mrs. Card and really got to see the magic of their relationship inside and outside of work. Um, so I am just honored to be with them tonight and so excited to welcome them on the show. Andy and Kathleen, thank you so much for coming on tonight. Laura T., it is our honor <laughs> to be on with you, and we're so grateful for this opportunity to reconnect with you. You're someone that I have great respect for and love and admiration, so Aww. thank you for having us. You, and here's my wife. I, I can say ditto to everything he just said. <laughs> oh, you guys, I have to tell you, I was nervous tonight. Like two people I admire so much being on together, I was nervous preparing for tonight. Well, don't be nervous. Uh, first of all, our story is uh, a, a love story. Oh. We love sharing it. But more importantly, we know that uh, love overcomes almost every problem there is. Oh. And we've witnessed that. Um, we've been blessed to grow up strong in our faith, but uh, the community that we've been part of that includes so many different kinds of people who are diverse, I'm not saying that there aren't disagreements and frictions every once in a while, but uh, love does conquer all. Oh, such a great message. So I, I have to ask you to share with the listeners how you two met. I, I'm glad to share this. I remember that, that day like it was yesterday. Kathleen and I were in the fifth grade in Holbrook, Massachusetts, about 15 miles south of Boston. And I was attending Franklin, the Franklin School, an elementary school in Holbrook. Kathleen was attending the Brookville School, and uh, Brookville is a part of the town of Holbrook. And it was a, basically a two-room schoolhouse. And I was singing in the Glee Club in the fifth grade and went up to perform at the Brookville School. And I remember this tall, very striking young girl uh, sitting in, actually she was standing with her Glee Club at the Brookville School. And I couldn't take my eyes off of her. And that was the first time I met Kathleen Bryan, B-R-Y-A-N. And I'm not saying that I fell in love that day, but I certainly was attracted to a very beautiful young lady. Oh, The only reason he noticed me was I was the tallest one in the class. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kathleen, did, did Andy stand out to you? No, I don't even remember him then. I didn't. I don't remember him until the sixth grade when we were in the same class together, and he had so much confidence. And he walked in, um, and it was we had double sessions back then. I don't know if you know what that was, but there was so many of us that there wasn't enough. The baby boomers. We were the baby boomers. There wasn't enough room in the school, so we went in the morning, and then. Someone else went in the afternoon, and then at the in the middle of the year, you switched. And so he, we were in the same class, and he came in, and it was very warm, and he had on Bermuda shorts, and he was immediately sent home to change. <laughs> for not dressing appropriately for school. For not dressing appropriately. And yes. al- alphabetically, the name Brian comes before the name Card. And Kathleen sat right in front of me in the sixth grade, and we ended up being in the same classroom from the sixth grade all the way through our senior year in high school. Wow. So when did you start officially dating? Not till we were seniors. We were, we we were friends. We, we were, were like, friends. well, I kind of tortured her all the time. Yes, that's the truth. <laughs> and, but we were truly friends, and we were... We were always together, but I never thought about it as boyfriend-girlfriend. 
And even even when I was in high school, my dad would say to me, I don't know why you're not dating that Kathy Bryan. And I said, Dad, she's my friend. I'm not oh. going to date my friend. And we were in se- seniors in high school. I was class president at Holbrook High School. Kathleen was the class secretary. We were right after the school elections sitting in the principal's office. And the principal, William Buckley, was uh, telling us what the year was going to be like. And he came to when the calendar would say that commencement would be and of course the senior prom and he actually turned to me and said so Andy who are you going to ask to take to the senior prom and I was kind of surprised that he asked me that and I said hmm maybe I'll ask Kathleen and she turned to me and said I'd go with you and I said you would go to me go with me and she said yes he was slow catching on he was very slow we we became very close friends uh, long before we thought about dating. But it wasn't just that we were friends. Uh, I became very familiar with her family and loved her family. She became very familiar with my family. So we and we loved growing up in Holbrook. Laura, you know, I Holbrook, do. And yes. it's a, it's kind of on the wrong side of the railroad tracks, no matter which side of town you come in from, but that's all right. And we had a great life there and uh, still consider our friends from Holbrook as our dearest friends. And I'm lucky that my friend from Holbrook is my life partner. Oh, well, so I heard you say you were already servant leaders. I mean, even when you were in high school, serving as president and secretary of the class. <laughs> we were. We, we were both very active um, in kind of the school politics. Uh, I was actually also active in kind of greater politics. And it turns out, Kathleen was, but she was on the wrong side of the fence. I was not. <laughs> and, but no, we. Uh, I grew up in a family where politics was not a dirty word. My grandmother, my father's mother, had been a militant suffragette fighting for women to get the right to vote. So I grew up uh, believing that service to government was a noble calling and participating in the political process was just acknowledging how important that first word in the Constitution is, we. It's our government. We should all be engaged in it. And do I remember, Andy, you told a story about um, di- the dinner table even having political conversation? That, that's right. Laura, you know very well. My, my grandmother, who was a, a, a very well-educated woman for a day uh, and did go to college, which was unusual for that time, and she was a school teacher. But she was also a strong militant suffragette fighting for women to get the right to vote. And women got the right to vote in 1920. So we'll be celebrating a big birthday this year for women's suffrage. But when we sat at the dining room table, we had to offer a blessing before we could begin to eat. But before we could pick up an eating utensil, my grandmother used to go around the table and tell her, ask everybody, tell me something from the newspaper today. And inevitably, every conversation centered around public politics or mm. uh, public policy and what was going on with the school committee of the selectmen or on Beacon Hill in Boston or on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. And she did expected us to pay attention. She did not expect us to agree. In fact, if we had arguments, uh, uh, she liked it and she'd kind of stir the pot. And if we all tended to agree on something. She said, democracy is not that easy. You've got to do more homework. I'm sure there are other views, too. So I grew up uh, really feeling as if we have an obligation to participate. I remember my grandmother saying distinctly, 
when I was your age, we didn't apply to me. Mm. Once women got the right to vote, it applied to me, and it applies to everyone in this country. They should participate in their government, so answer the call of service. And at least register to vote and vote, but get involved Find things that you agree with and people you can support and uh, have the courage to get engaged. And she did not expect us to just necessarily agree with her. She just expected us to participate in the debate and find out what the right answer would be. And I do remember her telling me one thing that stuck with me for a long time. It was, if democracy does anything that is perfect, it should be by accident. Mm. It should work for perfectly good, and if it turns out to be perfectly perfect, it should be by accident. Because if it's introduced and passed as perfection, chances are it was a dictatorship. Fascinating. I love that. Work for perfectly good. So let me ask, how how have you been able to, and maybe Kathleen, you can start by answering this one, how have you been able to keep love first in all the different aspects of your life, in prayer, in politics, and with all of the people that you meet? Uh, well, I think we both had really strong role models. Our parents obviously loved each other, and so it was that was expected. You loved your spouse. And the other thing is that um, I always felt that there was that a marriage is the only exclusive relationship that's really talked about in Scripture, and so that that relationship you have um, requires special communication, and it 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 should never be no one else should ever get into that communication that you have with your spouse, and so I feel like. God has always been in the relationship, and that makes a huge difference. Wow, I love that. Tell me a little bit more about special communication. What does that mean for for the two of you? Well, it, what it means is that um, you share intimately your concepts, your ideas. And I, when I counsel anyone that's getting married, I tell them that the only statistic for marriages lasting, because Christian marriages end like any other marriage, but the only statistics for a long marriage are the couple that prays together. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, raises it up. I don't know the, I can't remember the exact percentage, but it's up there in the 70 to 80 percent range. And um, I, I honestly believe that if you know that, if you can both go to the Lord when you have a real serious question, then you have someone to help you. But you, marriage is not a place where you're going to vote, because if you vote a tie, what do you do, you know? Mm. So I really do lean on the Lord for guidance about any any issue that comes up. We, we were blessed to have—we uh, we got married when we were sophomores in college, and we had strong faith. I will admit that I was— desperate to make sure my marriage survived. And I worked hard at that. And my wife worked hard at that. And we didn't know we weren't supposed to be happy when we didn't have any money. And we, and we didn't even know we had problems or we, and we had <laughs> lots of problems. But yeah. we were blessed and we worked hard at our marriage. We worked hard at understanding each other. But interestingly, uh, my wife entered a journey of faith that took her in a place where she never dreamed she would go. And I'm an engineer by training, so I was in college studying engineering, but I ended up having a journey in politics. So a journey in faith and a journey in politics uh, 
most people don't think church and state get along. We get along very well. And now I wanted to talk a little bit about um, what it's like to have these two sort of this engineering background and this faith-based background coming together. And how has that served your relationship, having these two different perspectives? Um, well, my father would did a lot of – he was really kind of one of the most influential people in my life. And he had friends. His friends were always totally different. And so his attitude was that we should be able to talk to anyone and, you know, and and I should be able to listen to any idea. And then I could, you know, then we could. So he and I would argue all the time about things. So it was it was permissible to have a different opinion in my family. And um, and so when we got married and we found out that we saw things a little differently, we would have long conversations, and that really, I, we enjoyed having those long conversations. We did not have to agree, and a lot of times we didn't. And I also was blessed to have parents that taught me to to listen. Uh, Laura, you know that I can sometimes talk too much, too. But, <laughs> never, never. <laughs> but, no, I would say that... Uh, I didn't know that if you were an engineer and a politician, you were an oxymoron. Mm. And I don't know whether I was the oxy or the moron, but there are very few engineers in politics. But I kind of got involved in politics when I was still actively seeking a, a career as an engineer and then working as an engineer. That's when I ran for office and got elected first to local government in Holbrook, Massachusetts, and then as a state representative, and and Laura, you know that I had a forgettable campaign for governor of Massachusetts in 1982, and but that opened a door that my grandmother kind of suggested would always be there. She said the Constitution is a wonderful invitation, mm-hmm. and you should accept the invitation to be involved with it. And I got an invitation after I ran for governor and lost to go work for President Reagan in Washington, D.C. at the White House. And it opened doors where I ended up working for George H.W. Bush and then George W. Bush and had a phenomenal uh, series of experiences working in Washington, D.C. for President Reagan, President George H.W. Bush and President George W. Bush and did things I never even dreamed that I would have a chance to do. But all the whole time, my wife was my partner. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was being asked to be chief of staff, when George W. Bush asked me to be chief of staff, I said, um, my wife is my partner, and if you can't accept that she's my partner as I do this job, it'd be very hard. I'm not going to share secrets with her, but if I can't share the experience and, and carry have her help carry some of my burdens, it won't work. And I was impressed that, number one, that he understood that and said yes. And I also came to recognize the relationship that George W. Bush and Laura Bush have is a remarkable relationship, too. So he understood what I was saying. But my wife has been my partner in everything I've done. And Laura T., you've seen that firsthand. She helped make a difference many, many times. And do we have strong uh, discussions where she has a view and I have a different view? Yes, and we actually enjoy that. Mm. And we we don't really argue, but we do challenge each other. And and 
I learned by listening to her and and I learned that she might not always learn by listening to me. <laughs> well, so so given your experiences in politics and even when we think about the political energy of today, how have you been able to or and or what tips do you have for keeping love first when you're interacting with each other and when you're interacting with people of all different types of opinions? Well, I'll start off by saying I have learned to respect everyone's involvement in government and in policy. So I do not perform litmus tests on people to say I like them or don't like them uh, just based on what they're saying or what they're advocating. I really try to listen and learn. And I'm always looking for common ground. Mm -hmm. Some people don't want to acknowledge common ground, but there usually is much more common ground than people realize. And I try to invite them to stand on common ground and then look out and see which path to take from there. And my wife has been uh, very helpful in that. Remember her journey in faith, uh, she was working wonderful. She had wonderful jobs and responsibilities with many different federal opportunities and others. And she kept, she called it a gnawing where she finally decided to go to divinity school and get her master's in theology and become ordained as a noted Methodist minister. And that literally paralleled my experiences in Washington, D.C., climbing a ladder that I never thought that I would even see, never mind have a chance to climb. Uh, but it was, it's wonderful. But I've learned the vast majority of people uh, want to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And they come motivated to uh, do things right for the good reason and with expectations of success for others and obviously for themselves. And uh, I value having a wife that has parted with me and opened my eyes to what common ground looks like and to listen and uh, to push me when I needed to be pushed or restrain me when I needed to be restrained. Mm. Something that um, I remember, my my dad always believed that everybody was a potential friend. Mm-hmm. And he got into an, into an accident once, a, 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 you know, a, he knocked the bumper off of Kai's brand-new car, and the guy was coming at him very angrily. And my dad looked at the guy, and he said to him, Sir, if we met under any other circumstances, you'd like me. And the guy looked at my father and he said, you just knocked the bumper off my car and you're trying to make friends with me? And my dad laughed and shook his head and said, yes. And the guy just, he broke down and he laughed. And um, and so my father has taught me that every single person is a potential friend. And you don't have to, you, you know, if you can find where it is that you can connect with that person, you can know them. And in ministry, what I try to do is I try to look for why is this person behaving the way they're behaving? Mm. Um, there's got to be something else going on underneath. And my job is to kind of relax and figure that out and try to help them figure it out, too. So um, controversy, I don't think, has to be antagonistic as much as it can be enlightening. And I'm struck by, I'm sure all of your listeners will 
could tell that my wife and I both have a Boston accent. <laughs> it's been wonderful because we can really understand each other well. <laughs> I, I miss the Boston accent. It's my favorite. <laughs> That's fantastic. So I, I love this idea of, you know, looking for that common ground and then seeing that everybody is a potential friend. So I, I have to go back and ask, you know, you've had these amazing experiences, you know, in the White House. For both of you, what was your most memorable moment from those White House years? Can you pick one? Go ahead. All right. So when 9-11 happened, mm-hmm. um, Laura Bush called me and said, would you, would you, you're a pastor, would you speak to some of my staff? from Texas. They were very scared. Their parents wanted them to come home immediately. And from that, I we formed a relationship with Alma Powell, and we formed, um, and we the, the model was the military model, we formed groups that would listen to each other, and we brought in um, a pastor, we brought in a rabbi, and we brought in an imam. And, and um, talk to all of the spouses in the administration. And for me, that was a chance for me to use what I knew um, to bring people together to help, you know, just to help us have a new understanding about people. And Alma Powell and I and um, Debbie Dingle, we put together a lunch. We had questions at the table for everybody that was there, and they were ambassadors' wives from all the countries, Congress, um, the Senate, and um, we went around afterwards and asked everybody at the table to explain what um, what they learned at their table about the country or for in the United States about the state. And it was just so moving to have these women, these wives of all of the people, stand up and and express what they wanted us to know about Germany, what they wanted us to know about Palestine, what they wanted us to know about Israel, and what they wanted us to know about Wyoming. And there was a, it, so that, to me, was a very rewarding experience that I never expected I would ever have. Wow. Wow. Well, I, I, have, I had so many experiences at the White House serving three presidents, but September 11, 2001, and the leadership that I saw President George W. Bush bring was just remarkable. And I tried to be cool, calm, and collected that day. And uh, yes, I'm the one who whispered into his ear when he was sitting in that classroom in Sarasota, Florida, at the Emma E. Booker School, and sitting in front of second graders. And I whispered in his ear, a second plane hit the second tower. America is under attack. And I knew when I whispered in his ear that I was delivering a message that was relatively unique. I was delivering it in a forum that it normally would not have been delivered in. It would have been probably delivered while the president was in his office Mm -hmm. or maybe in a meeting, but it certainly wouldn't have been at an elementary school in front of second graders. And it was also delivered as if I was on stage because the cameras were rolling. And I walked out and I whispered to him in his ear. And I watched the president, and I was completely comfortable with the message I delivered it, but I wasn't sure how it would react. But he did nothing to introduce fear to those second graders. He did nothing to demonstrate fear to the media that would have translated it to the satisfaction of the terrorists all around the world. And he also, I think, acknowledged to himself 
what his job as president was. He took an oath to preserve, protect, and defend. And so the experiences around September 11, 2001, they really do define my experience in government. I was blessed to have had experiences serving presidents as they made tough decisions, but witnessing the leadership uh, on September 11th, the day, and the weeks and months that followed uh, had to be the uh, the remarkable experience that I had that most people want to talk about. And I'm glad to talk about it because you remember, Laura, mm-hmm. when 9-11 happened, we all promised we would never forget. But the memory is beginning to fade, and it's important for us to tell those that don't remember that day what it was all about. Right. Uh, th- that the I mean I I know exactly where I was and what I was doing and um, it brings back such vivid memories and the aftermath and sort of everyone coming together us coming together as a nation and um, so he- hearing the the two of you talk about th- that memorable moment in the White House um, I wonder and I've, I've had the I've been blessed to see that two of you work together, both personally and professionally. How have you been able to maintain that over the years? I mean, you've gone through huge pieces of history together and a part, integral part of that history. Um, and then you have these quiet moments at home. How do you maintain um, that that team between the two of you when these big things are happening around the world and, and you're involved in them? Well, we still have a family, and we still have um, everyday responsibilities. And, I mean, my mother would always be the one to say to me, um, you know, don't get too big for your britches was her <laughs> thing. And so we were warned about that. We had to be able to we, – we had to remember who we were and to remember where we came from and why we were here. And, mm. um, you know, I know – my catechism is I'm here to know, love, and serve the Lord in this world and the next. And she grilled that into me. And that really does, that tells me who I am and, and what my job is. Um, and so it's, it, it, it isn't, it's, I don't feel it's complicated. Mm. It, it's funny for me. Um, I came to recognize when I could be home with my wife, with my family, it was important for me to be fully present for them. Uh, my grandmother, who I talked about, this woman who was a suffragette, she had little sayings that she used to say all the time. One was, taste your words before you spit them out. Boy, does that ring true to me. Wow. I think today we also have to say, lick your thumbs before you tweet the words <laughs> out. But, um, but something else she said, don't leave the room until you go out the door. Uh-huh. And... I can't tell you how many times I think about that every single day, but when I'm with my family, it particularly rings true. I want to be fully present with my family when I'm with them, rather than distracted and trying to think about other things going on outside of my wife's world or my our children's world or the grandchildren's world. So I, I focus on being fully present wherever I am, and I cherish the chance the chances to be with my wife and to be fully present with her. And I love being helpful to her. But the toughest times in our marriage have been when we were apart. Mm. And um, yes, there are people, thousands, millions of people 
who aren't with their spouses because they serve in the military or in the foreign service or in the intelligence services or the traveling around the world. And uh, even professional athletes, they can't be with their spouses when they're in season. And uh, I know that. But I, as a politician, I ran a campaign in New Hampshire for uh, then Vice President Bush when he successfully became president. And I, we, I spent over a year in New Hampshire sleeping on a cot in an office, uh, not a hotel room. Uh, I only saw my wife 13 nights out of that year. And that was a tough year. It was tough to be away. But I'm always sensitive that it sounds like a burden to me, but it pales in comparison to the burdens that spouses have to put up with when their husband serves in the military, the clandestine services, and or their wife is serving in the clandestine services or the military service, and, and they don't get to talk to them or call them or see them for long periods of time. That was tough. Mm -hmm. So the toughest times of our marriage is when we haven't been there physically to support each other, but we've always been there emotionally and spiritually. So what is the best part of having a partner you can rely on for 52 years? Um, I think it's knowing that you have someone you can trust completely. So, you know, it's, it's an unconditional love that you know even before you do something. There isn't anything that I can't tell my husband, and I don't, I don't have any fear that I'm going to do something that's going to um, ruin the relationship because that, that relationship, we trust each other and we care so deeply about each other. I think that without trust, I don't know how you would have a good relationship. That doesn't mean there aren't rocky roads or roller coaster rides and there haven't been challenges, but um, we're very candid with each other. And mm -hmm. in fact, We've been really, really candid with each other, <laughs> yeah. and, and sometimes there are consequences to the candor. But, um, you know, commitments mean a lot to me. The oath that people take, the oath to serve the government, the oath to follow the commander of the commander-in-chief, the oath to, to be married. They, I take them seriously, and uh, it's funny. I'm, I'm very big on saying my prayers and, and have been for a long, long, long time. And my wife, you know, she, she is like a saint to me. But I'm also, I, I, I got an awful lot of Boy Scouts. I loved being in Boy Scouts as a young man. I still say the Scout Oath every day and the Scout Law, trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. And uh, I do those things, and those comfort me when I can't be with my family or my wife. That's amazing. So awesome to hear how you work together, um, your commitment to being present. So I have to ask, because this is a question I get a lot from people, whether I'm speaking or whether, you know, I'm one-on-one -on -one coaching, is, you know, when the kids were young and even now, given all the demands on your time, how do you find time for each other? Any tips to share with our listeners? Well, we've been pretty careful to try to try to schedule uh, we call them date nights, and at least once a week. Uh, it was almost impossible to do when, when I was working in the White House, but and we have a hard time keeping uh, that schedule even now in life. But we 
at least we talk about it and actually usually write it down <laughs> that we're going to take time <laughs> off. Uh, but we love talking to each other, so we spend a lot of time in the car. One of the things that happened after we got married, uh, we went. I went to school in the University of South Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina, and we used to drive 95 from Columbia, South Carolina, all the way up to Boston, and we enjoy being in the car, talking to each other. So I'd still do a lot of traveling. My wife does a lot of traveling. When we travel by car, we love it because we get to talk. So um, scheduling time, at least telling each other that we were going to set aside time means a lot, even if we don't get the time set aside. Mm. And we have... We also have a tendency to talk way too long, especially at night if I'm on the road. I'll call. Last week I was in uh, Los Angeles, California, and uh, I, I'm calling my wife, and, and we're talking and talking and talk, talking, and then I'm realizing I'm on the West Coast. It's it's after midnight for you. Go to go to sleep. <laughs> and, so, but one thing I do say is that I think the hardest thing was on our children, and and so. I want to recognize that. Um, if, if I think you had a question, what would we do differently? I think that, I think that, that it was very hard. It's very hard to be the child of a. Like they were so grateful that they were all grown by the time I became a pastor, so they didn't have to be a PK. But um, it's hard. It's really hard, and I don't. I can't underestimate how hard it is, and the kind of pressure that kids can feel um, if. If somebody doesn't agree with what their parent um, is doing politically, so yeah, that that was not an easy time. And all I can say is that we've got really great kids, and I'm very appreciative that they were as understanding as they were. Although it's amazing, we've learned that um, right now, Kathleen and I are have children that are much older than we are. <laughs> no, we don't. Yeah. <laughs> Because I don't feel as old as they I, are. You mean when you look in the mirror, you say, oh, wait, I, I'm still young. They can't be my kids. <laughs> no, but we were, we were really blessed with, with three we, really Three wonderful, wonderful children, six fabulous grandchildren. In fact, today we spent time with our oldest grandchild who has taken a new job in, in Boston working at the Harvard Medical School, and we, we just had a wonderful afternoon with her. That's amazing. I know family is so important to you. Um, And so kind of on that same subject, um, how were you able to create and find balance between that time with the kids and um, time, you know, with work in in such demanding jobs? Yeah, I would have confessed that I don't know we always found balance. We tried, but it's just not easy. Um, And I just think that there's a lot of forgiveness, and like I said, we were lucky that we had some pretty understanding kids. Um, and, you know, I guess the the thing that I think of now is you have n- no idea how brief life is and how quickly things go by. And um, and there are, there are things that you don't get to do over in a family. So, you know, now... We really savor any time that we have with our kids because there were so many times when we didn't do things when they were younger. Yeah, looking back, I, uh, when I worked as chief of staff to the president, it, our children were grown. Mm. And I 
they were all adults by the time I had that opportunity. And But when I worked at the White House for President Reagan and the first President Bush, they were young and, and uh, in those challenged teenage years. And I did not give them as much time as I should have or wanted to do. My wife was remarkable. But there are other institutions that help as well, and uh, whether it's school or community activities or the scouting programs, or uh, there are good things to do. Keep a kid busy and mm-hmm. always be interested. I remember even when I was working for President Reagan, I tried to be a, a Cub Scout, uh, Weebelow's leader, and made a promise to the, the Cub Scouts that I'd take them camping every month. It was really hard to keep that promise when I was working at the I White bet. House. But I found a, a, a wonderful retired military man who was able to step in and help. We kind of kept the promise, and he helped to make sure that the student, uh, the, the young scouts had the experience, even if I couldn't keep my end of the promise every, every month. But my wife was a saint, and she put the yellow shirt on and was a Cub Scout leader as well, so that made a difference. But, no, you always feel guilty, and probably the most remarkable couple that I met in politics in terms of a love story, uh, George H.W. Bush and Barbara Bush. And Barbara Bush would always say, you know, you, you've got to give more time to your family. You never regret the time that you give your family. You do end up regretting, regretting time that you maybe gave your job or maybe gave to uh, somebody else. But you never regret the time you gave your family, and I wish that I could have given our kids more time when they were growing up, but I've been blessed to have their love, and they know that I love them. Well, I, I think as parents, you know, we're often hardest on ourselves, and um, kids are absolutely so resilient, and there are, I, I love that you point out that there are all these other resources that you can rely on as well. It doesn't all have to come from, from us as parents. It's, there's a lot of pressure on us as parents to try to be and do everything, and it's not always the, uh, possible. I think we all have an obligation because the, the loneliness today is epidemic, mm. and it's a it's, it's so tragic when you see young people committing suicide. They're not alone, and we've got to find a way to demonstrate that we care, that we embrace, and they belong. Mm-hmm. They belong. And so uh, that's something that my wife and I are doing in our senior years. We're trying to help people overcome loneliness and recognize they do belong, and they can make contributions, and they are important, and we love them. And right. so... Uh, you know, all of us have a calling that is much bigger than we're able to describe, and sometimes we don't acknowledge it and may not even feel it, but the truth is it's there. And we're blessed to live in this country where we do have freedom and we do have resources that other people around the world don't have, and uh, and yet we still have an epidemic of loneliness and, unfortunately, too many suicides and too many people that seek uh, drugs or other ways to escape wherever they are. And and I'm committed to helping people recognize that there's a better way. Mm. 
You know, that idea, you talked about getting kids involved. And I think that that's one of the really important messages that we can share is getting them away from their screens and talking with each other, talking at the dinner table. Um, A lot of the information that I talk about on the show is building that family community. And family is a representation of the community outside. And it sort of has that ripple effect, that ripple effect of being Mm -hmm. involved. And and again, starting starting with family. Well, we, I, I always feel guilty that I don't spend as much time with my extended family as mm. I should. But it, uh, I do celebrate where we are, and I, I'm trying to do everything I can. I want, you know, we talk about politics. I want people to run toward politics, not away from it, because uh, if, you, if you're not part of it, that doesn't mean politics will go away. It'll be, it's left to other people. And don't leave it to others. Get engaged. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I know how you two have personally touched my life, and I know that you've touched so many lives. When people think about Andrew and Kathleen Card, how do you want them to remember your interactions? Love. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's truth is, a, love is a very, very powerful word, but it's even a, a more powerful practice. And it does take discipline to love because there are things that people do things that are hard to love, but you should still love the people that do them. And and so, oh, I just I will be known. You know, history books will write about what we've done, and and maybe no one will read the history book. That doesn't mean the history book won't be written on somebody's soul or or somebody's life. And I've been blessed to be touched by so many fabulous friends, including Laura T. And um, we get to see how important those relationships are. And um, I'm someone who am am so grateful that by the accident of birth, I was born in the United States. uh, And that I had uh, uh, an infrastructure around me that introduced me to freedom and independence and creativity and experience and success and um, hoping that I could be contagious with that and I think everybody should run run for the solutions and don't hide in a corner love that Kathleen let's end with you what how do you want your interactions to be remembered um, I just would like people to know that I care mm. that I really care and that um, I'm looking for the image of God in every person, and I'm really thankful. I'm thankful that um, that people are forgiven, and that reconciliation is possible. So, yeah, I just really want if if they if if they even think of me at all, just know that I care. I care about life. Aww. Well, I have to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for tonight, for being on the show, for being so influential in my life. I truly am so blessed to know both of you and have worked with both of you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. And I want to give a special shout out to Linda Gambatisa, who helps help pull tonight together um, and has also been just an amazing individual in my world. I don't know if she realizes how much she touches me. And she's worked with you both for many years. Believe believe it or not, I met Linda Gambatisa my very first day. Actually, it was when I was being interviewed to go work at the White House. 
and she was Linda Miller then, and uh, then I watched as she had wonderful relationships and got married and everything else, but she has been doing my schedule <laughs> for, uh, forever. I don't get to see her that much, oh. but, I, but she is just a joy to work with, and we're grateful to have her friendship, and <laughs> Kathleen and I... Uh, have tremendous respect for and appreciation for everything that Linda G does for us. And, and Laurie, you know how competent she is as well. She's amazing. She's amazing. And on that note, we will end tonight's show. As always, I love to hear your thoughts on the program. Please visit Own Your Truth with Laura T's Facebook page and give me your feedback on uh, tonight's show. And again, a huge thank you to Andy and Kathleen for being part of it. Don't forget, if you miss a show live or want to share it with friends, you can catch replays on the Own Your Truth with Laura T podcast available on iTunes. Search the show, download episodes, or like um, and follow to get the latest show as soon as as it's released. Thank you so much for joining me. This is Laura T. with Own Your Truth. Have a wonderful night.